Esther. We're going to study the book of Esther. And when my wife and I were dating, we talked on the phone about what we wanted to name our daughter, if we ever had a daughter. Did you guys do this when you dated? Talked about what you're going to name your kids in the future? Your future children? Yeah. Amen. So, amen. Thank you. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> so Kelly and I, we talked about the name Hadessa. And I never heard it before. I was in seminary. My wife had to unpack that for me. And I'm like, oh, that's a beautiful name. It's in Esther. It's Esther's Hebrew name. And so when we found out we were having a girl, I said, Esther. I said, Hadessa. And Kelly said, okay, Hadessa. So over the next nine months, I began to study when I could, the story of Esther. And I, and, and, and I began to fall in love with Esther because our mission here at Missio Day is Christ Community Culture and at the book of Esther is all about culture. And we're going to see that this week. So we're going to start Esther. Let's do it. Let's jump into it. We're going to go verse by verse. This isn't, this isn't like the marriage series. We're going to go verse by verse to the entire book. But let me tell you a couple things about Esther real quick before we dive into it. Esther is one of two books out of all the books in the Bible. How many books in the Bible? 66, right? Six, six books in the Bible. There's only two named after women, Ruth and Esther. And so Esther is a special book for women, which is another reason why we named our baby girl after the book. Um, secondly, it's the oldest book written in the Old Testament. So it's the latest, one of the late, not the latest, but one of the latest books written in the Old Testament. And because of that, there's a lot of controversy and a lot of mystery surrounding this book. A lot of controversy. People don't know what to do with this book. That's why I said earlier, no one's done a whole series on the book of Esther, except for this one church in Seattle. And no one, no one does it. It's too hard. It's too complex. The Jews, there's Jewish people. There are a lot of Jews in St. Louis, actually. Don't know if you knew that or not. Jewish folks love this book because it's the book that creates or begins for them the Feast of Purim. Raise your hands if you've ever heard of the Feast of Purim. Okay, we're going to talk about that towards the end of the series. When we were at the hospital and we told the nurse what our baby's name was, Hadessa, she says, oh, and she told us the whole story of Purim. And I'm like, yes. So see, it's a good way to be evangelistic as well. But she was evangelizing to us and trying to make us to become Jews, but we didn't. <laughs> but we kind of are, you know, in some ways. <laughs> so Jews love it. Christians don't. Historically, we've not known what to do with this book. We, we've just not done anything with it. For instance, there were no commentaries written about it for centuries. In the modern era, there have been many commentaries. Here's a quote from one really good commentator who's written a commentary on Esther explaining why this book is so controversial. It's controversial because of the absence of religious values and the presence of sensuality and brutality. Hey, you excited about this, Sean? It's going to be a good series. It's um, sensuality and brutality. I like this. The Bible's cool. The book of Esther has posed a problem for interpreters throughout its history. For the first seven centuries, for 700 years of the Christian church, not one commentary was produced on the book. Then around that time, Calvin is writing commentaries on every book in the Bible. He's not got a commentary on the book of Esther. Martin Luther denounced the book with Second Maccabees. He said, I am such a great enemy to the second book of Maccabees and to Esther that I wish they had not come to us at all, for they have too many heathen unnaturalities in it. It's a good book. It's a controversial book. The book is written in a time period about people, small Jewish people who were living in what's called the diaspora. You've heard this term before, diaspora. It's a Greek term which means to scatter or to spread or to disperse. So the Jews who 
were living in Jerusalem, they were taken by King Nebuchadnezzar into Babylon. So they were spread and dispersed across Babylon, no longer living in Jerusalem, no longer able to sacrifice in the temple, no longer able to hear from God because God's in Jerusalem. You might remember Daniel in the lion's den or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were in a fiery furnace. They were famous diasporic Jews who Nebuchadnezzar dragged to Babylon. Um, the, the video does an excellent job explaining that. Nebuchadnezzar grabbed them, brought them to Babylon. A few years later, Cyrus rose up. Cyrus actually let them go back to Jerusalem. And during this time, some Jews stayed because they profited there. There was a lot to gain there. And this becomes interesting. Is this good? Is this bad? Is this wicked? Is this sinful? And so this book is really about a small religious group of people, a minority group, who's living in a culture that's completely different than their own. Another way of saying that would be this. There was a religious minority living in a society which was dominated by spiritual and moral values at great variance to their own. So here's the question. Keller asks this question. When you're a religious minority, how do you relate to the dominant culture? Do you? Try to withdraw so you're completely pure. Buckle down, homeschool your kids, don't watch TV, don't even have a TV. Do you do that? That doesn't seem right. It just doesn't seem right. You can't anyway. You really can't. Number two, do you try to fit in and keep your views secret? You know, secret Christian man. Is that what you do? That doesn't seem right. doesn't seem right at all. We're doing that. Some of us are doing that, right? Do you protest and try to criticize everything? Well, y'all going to hell in a handbasket. God hates the gays. You know, that's sometimes what Christians do. We just condemn the rest of society. And Keller says, that's not charitable. Jesus said, they'll know us by our love. So what do you do? So as we study this book, I want you to think about this. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, you are living in a diaspora. Whether you know it or not, it's true. Because the Bible says, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you are an alien and you're a stranger in this land. Or as the old ancient hymn says, we're just a passing through. This is not our home. And so we are a small minority living in a culture that's really anti-Christ. How do we live in that culture? Do we hunker down and separate ourselves from them and try to stay pure? Don't want to get dirty by them dirty people out there. Do we pretend like we're not a Christian and try to blend in and just try to sneak by? Or do we be judgmental and protest everything. We have to ask these questions. We live in a min we are a minority religious sect living in a culture that is full of sensuality and hedonism, just like Persia. You may not know this. Thank you. You may not know this, but over the course of the past seven, 10 years, statistics have revealed that we are the minority. It may not feel like it to you because a lot of your friends are Christians, but the recent statistics have said that over 56% of Americans have never stepped foot into a church. Not once. Now, when I grew up, everyone went to church at least once and then hated it and never went back. But now it's no one has ever gone to church. I mean, 56% have never gone to church. That means how many percent have gone and not gone back? Another percent. How many have stuck? A very small percent. So we are a small minority living in a culture that's um, morals and spiritual ways are quite different than the ones that God has called us to do. So you can see this book is going to be a good study for us as we talk about how to impact culture here in suburbia, here in St. Louis, here in America. 
as we study this book, you're going to meet a very ordinary yet beautiful orphan girl who's living in a time period amongst a people who are hedonistic and pushing morality to the extreme. You're going to see that even tonight. And she's living in a time period where God seems to be completely silent, maybe even absent, or at least very, very far off. Not much different, I think, than where we are today. So it's a very, very timely book. Let's look at it. If you would, open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Um, I'm sorry, did I say Ephesians? Yeah. <laughs> Ephesians and Esther, they're like brothers and sisters, I guess. I don't know. I get them confused sometimes. All right, let's begin. Father, we know that you are holy and that you are good and that you are mighty and that you love us, despite the fact that you probably shouldn't. You love us so much that you sent your son to die for our sins and you reconciled us. You bought us. You brought us into a covenant relationship with yourself. And you have promised us so much, so much. And so because of that, we've gathered here to worship you and to praise you. And I ask, Lord, that as we study this book, as we study Esther, you would shake our lives. You would turn us upside down and shake just the, the lint out of our pockets. You would shake us to our very core that we might change, that we might be on mission, that we might influence the world that we live in, that Emily might influence the people in France, that we will use what we've learned from this book to change the world. We ask this, Lord, for your glory because it's all for your glory. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's look. Chapter one, verse one. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, I'm going to stop there real quick, and I have to talk about who is this Ahasuerus person. Ahasuerus is his Persian name. So he's a Persian king. His Greek, anyone know what his Greek name is? Xerxes. You have to say it like this, Xerxes. If you Google the name Xerxes, you'll see it like this, Xerxes, all capitals, the great. He was the most powerful man that ever walked, you know, if he's only a man, not Jesus, of course, the face of this planet. He is Xerxes the Great. In fact, let's see how powerful he is. Xerxes, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. And so the author of this book is saying, I'm talking about the one who ruled the world. <laughs> Because this is basically the world. Here's a picture of it in modern day um, terms. He reigned from Pakistan, from Iraq and Iran, all the way up to India, all the way over to Greece. He ruled, the, this is the world at that time. They didn't know anything outside of this. There, there probably wasn't a lot going on outside of this. He ruled the world. Matter of fact, he ruled all of this nation, and he controlled all of those people as one nation. He was the king of that nation. If you look at those people, Turkey, Iraq, Israel, Iran, Afghanistan, Egypt, Libya, <laughs> none of those people are, are one now. You can't even get them to look at each other without going cross-eyed and killing something, right? I mean, this man ruled, and he put all of them under one authority. That's, am that's amazing in it of itself. Let me tell you a little bit about Xerxes. It is hard to overstate how amazing and how powerful and how awesome Xerxes was. I mean, just the fact that he ruled over all of this. How do you think he did that? He had to have a pretty amazing army, didn't he? 
If you know anything about Xerxes, you know that he had an amazing army. He had over two million fighting men in his army. It's been written that when those men would pull back their arrows and shoot them up at their enemies, it would blot out the sun. Wow. Have you seen the movie 300? Well, we'll just fight in the shade. <laughs> they, they, the, he, he went all the way to Greece and in, and in Greece, the 300 Spartans held their ground and defeated Xerxes. And if you've seen that movie, Frank Miller, he, he, does, a, he does a close job at overstating who Xerxes is. He's like this giant seven foot tall man with gold earrings and jewelry all over him. And he's just like a giant of a man and he's real scary. It's amazing. <laughs> he had two million people fighting for him. On top of that, he had a super elite bodyguard army. These are just the people who followed him to protect him alone. And they were like the Navy SEALs. They were the best of the best. If you're a best soldier, you get to serve the king. You know what these men were called? Alex, you know what these men were called? They were called the immortals. <laughs> the immortals. There were 10,000 immortals that served the king. He had an entourage of 10,000 super ninjas that followed him. They were called the immortals because people thought they were invincible. They, they weren't, but they were, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to meet them in a, you know, in a bar fight. He had this throne. It was this giant gold throne that he would sit on. And behind it was like these giant gold animals of some sort, just all solid gold. And it was on this elevated plane with like a staircase that led down. If, if you've seen the movie 300, you've seen it. These immortals would carry him like a float to the battle. And he would be way up there above them on his throne, just sitting there and watching his two million men destroy the enemies. I mean, just, he didn't have to fight at all. They did all the fighting for him. Even just to touch the battlefield, he would have to walk down like a flight of stairs just to get down there and say, okay, good job, guys. Going back up to my throne. He was a god. All Persian kings thought they were god, but Xerxes fit the bill. Okay, so let's go on. Moving on before we start to idolize this man. Because he sure did himself. Listen to this. In those days when King Xerxes sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, that's the richest, wealthiest city in the world. In those days, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, for the army of Persia and the army of the Medes, and for the nobles and the governors of the provinces who were before him. He gave a feast for, let's say this is like 20,000 to 50,000 people, commentators will say. Let's just take the low number. 20,000 people at a party. Can you imagine that? I can barely get through Thanksgiving, you know. He's got 20,000 to 50,000 people that he's having a party. He knew how to throw parties too. You need to know this. Open bar, open harem for his soldiers, open buffet. And he's throwing this for his soldiers, for, for the soldiers of the Medes, for the governors, for the officials, for all those in power. And look what he goes on. Why does he do this? Does he do this because he's a fun guy? Does he do this because he wants to hang out with his buds and he wants to bless them and honor them for such good work? You might say he does, but the Bible tells us why he does it. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and splendor. That word glory, by the way, is doxa. It's a worship word. Who gets glory? To God alone be the glory. It's all about God, when we talk about glory, this man thinks he's God. He wants to have this party for all these people, not because he wants to show them a good time, but because he wants to show them his 
glory. And they would sit, along, sit around him and drink his wine and eat his food and, and hang out with his harem. And they would say, wow, he is like a God. I wish I was him. He'd show them for the glory, the splendor, and the pomp of his greatness for many days. How many days? Can you see that? 180 days of partying. If you can do the math, that's six months. You, you're good at math. That's, that's six months. Six months of drinking wine, eating food, and, you know, whatever else you do with a harem. <laughs> can you imagine that? I mean, how many of you have partied for six months? I mean, some people I know, I know friends who have. They basically live their life like a party for six months. But I'm talking about six months of doing nothing but sitting in this room and drinking and eating and partying. I, I, that's, I don't even know how you could live. I, couldn't, I wouldn't make it past one day, I'm sure. But 180 days? I want you to kind of try to wrap your mind around that. Who are these people laying around in this castle with all this food and drink and stuff? Are you wrapping your mind around it? Be honest. Are you thinking, I want to do that? No? Okay. All right, good. Good. Don't. Because let me tell you what, it gets even worse. Look at this. And when these days were complete, the king gave for all the people, President Susa and Citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of his palace. So as if that wasn't enough, the king says, hey, I have an idea. Let's open it up to the people. Let's let all the little people from down there in the city come up and party with us. I, you know, I'm sick of you guys. I've been drunk with you for 180 days. Let's bring in some fresh meat. Let's bring in some new folks and let's see what happens. And so he opens the doors. He sends out an invitation to the city. They come up. They get a seven-day vacation of all-you-can-eat, all-inclusive resort. And, and, and why does he do it? Again, it's to show his glory. Look, look what happens. And they walked in, and what did they see? White cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple and silver rods and marble pillars and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of periphery marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and it was the royal wine that was lavished according to the bounty of the king. <laughs> I want you to just imagine this. You're a peasant, okay? You know it. You know, if you lived back then, you'd be a peasant. Maybe you're a blacksmith. Maybe you're a farmer. And you get an invitation in the mail, and it says, come get a tour of the king's castle, seven-day, all-expense-paid, all-inclusive vacation. You're like, I'm putting my my blacksmith tool down. <laughs> I'm putting my fishing pole down. Honey, let's go. I'm going to wear the best clothes I got. And it's probably like some messed up blue jeans, you know, the cleanest white shirt you've got and it's a holy, holy tennis shoes. And you walk into the king's castle and there's a guard, a bodyguard, uh, a bounty guy, you know, bouncer. He hands you a cup. You're going to need this. Is this gold? <laughs> Pure gold, in fact. It's on the house. It's your party favor. What is it for? It's for drinking wine. <gasps> How much wine? It's unlimited. It's a bottomless cup. That's why it's gold. It's, it, 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 you get the gold club here. You get the gold card. You get to go in and drink as much wine as you want. And there's more. It's the royal wine. Not cheap Trader Joe wine. This is, this is the best wine in the world. I mean, it's Xerxes. He rules the world. This is the best wine. You get to have it as much as you want. 
thanks. And you walk in and the first thing you see, first thing the Bible tells us is about the curtains. Who cares about curtains if you're a farmer? Do you? No. I don't even have that many curtains in my house, to be honest with you, because they're too expensive. You know how expensive curtains are. These curtains are made out of the finest materials. And specifically, I want to highlight purple and violet. You know this. You know that that's a dye that's so hard to find. I think they had to get it from a shellfish of some sort and squeeze the blood out of it and make that into a dye that would make clothes. Only, that's why purple is t still today seen as like this royal color. Only kings could afford that color. Okay, so only a king could wear a purple robe. If you're a peasant, if you're a farmer, you don't even have a purple glove. You don't even have a purple handkerchief. You just can't afford that. And, and it'd be a waste of your money. They're walking in, they're saying, oh my goodness, those curtains are purple. I've never even seen purple. Now I see nothing but purple. How many, how many curtains do you think are in the house? I mean, it's a palace that holds 50,000 people for a 180-day party. I'm assuming they have a lot of windows because they don't have air conditioning. That's a lot of purple. That's a lot of wealth. It gets worse. What are those purple curtains held up with? Silver rods. Okay, whatever silver, you know, that's left over. We don't have room for it on the tables. Let's just melt that down and make a pole and hang the curtain on it. I don't know if you know this, but when you put a pole through a curtain, you can't even see what the pole is. I think mine is like this cheap white aluminum on the one curtain that we have. Here's silver poles. What a waste. Goes on. He, they're walking. They see these marble pillars. Then they see these couch. I don't, I can't even fathom this. Couches of gold. That's a couch? Yeah, it's gold. Can I sit on it? That's what couches are for. But it's gold. Well, if you want, you can sit on the silver one if it makes you feel better. No, 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 I'll sit on the gold one. How many couches do you think he has? He's hosting a party for 15 to 20 to 50,000 people. It's a lot of gold couches. Keep going. The floor. Okay, so you're not amazed. You've got a gold cup in your hand. You're just kind of like your head spinning, and you're like, honey, look, there's jewels in the floor. The floor is made out of marble with jewels and stones and mother of pearl. And then he just kind of just says, et cetera, et cetera, because it says precious stones. All kinds of stuff on the floor. I just want to take it off. Does this kind of sound familiar to you? You kind of get this picture of heaven, right? Where you're going to walk on streets of gold, pavements of gold. This guy thinks he's God. This guy thinks he lives in heaven. These commoners probably think they live in heaven. And now they're going to have this banquet like, the, like we talked about last week, the Lord's Supper, the, the wedding feast of the lamb. And they're just going to drink and eat and just have fun. And they're going to lay on gold couches. They're going to pass out on gold couches. So we probably need to have a drinking rule, right? Like we're going to give you a free cup. You're going to drink as much as you want, but let's make a rule about this. Don't you think we should have a rule? No Baptists in the room? All right. Do I get an amen? amen? Okay, okay. Let's get a rule. Here's the rule. And drinking was according to this rule, colon, there is no rule, <laughs> no compulsion. The only rule is there's no rules. In fact, the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Guys, we're bringing in the whole city. Do whatever you want to these people. What do you, what do you get when you've got 50,000 people who's been drinking for seven days straight and you can do whatever you want? No holds bars. I mean, this is like Hotel California, you know, my picture of the Eagles song. It's just amazing. 
nastiness. I mean, I'm thinking, maybe I have a nasty mind, but I'm thinking nasty things are happening. Maybe, maybe they're playing Monopoly. <laughs> but I have this feeling that there's 50,000 people there drunk, and there's a harem, and it stinks, and it's, and it's nasty. I don't know about you, but I'm just getting kind of tired of talking about this. I'm starting to feel dirty. Anyone feel dirty? Maybe it's just me. <laughs> I stopped talking about this man because he makes me sick. Um, let's talk about something cleaner. Let's something, talk about something more pure. Maybe something that's been sanitized. Let's talk about, let's talk about you. Here's an interesting thought. How different are you? Let me ask it like this. How many of you have tried this kind of lifestyle? And you've been there. And you've done that. Maybe not 180 days. <laughs> I hope not. But maybe seven. Or maybe just one day. One day where I say, you know what? God, you're dead to me. I'm going to do whatever I want. Anyone been there? You don't have to raise your hand. Except for that all the gold and silver. Yeah, right. <laughs> but if you had the gold and silver... Just make it even that much easier. Maybe you're bored and you need to do that kind of stuff. I think that we're not any different than Xerxes. I know this because anthropology and philosophy continues to teach that the heart of man is just like this. If we had all the power and all the wealth of this man, we wouldn't be much different. And we see people who have this kind of power and wealth and we see that they're not much different. We want our own glory. So the first point that I brought out was Xerxes was the God man who sought his own glory. But you and I are not much different. We also seek our own glory. Raise your hand if you've got a house. Raise your hand if in your house you've got a throne. <laughs> no, not so cool anymore. You do. This is my seat. <laughs> no one sits in my seat. I know someone who's got a fork. You know, this is my fork. No one eats with my fork. <laughs> we, we, we want people to see our glory, right? We may not wear purple robes, but we, you know, we have nice shoes, and the brand is on those shoes. We have a different way of showing it now. We want a nice yard. I want grass in my yard, you know, and no, none of those little white things, you know, the dandelions. I hate those things. You want people to drive by your yard and say, man, that guy's got a nice yard. I want a yard like that. We want people to see our glory, I drive a little Honda Accord. I bought it because they told me it would last forever. But if I had money, I wouldn't mind a Jaguar. I would like a Jaguar. I'd like a BMW. I, I saw a teenager driving a BMW the other day, and I'm thinking, I wish I was that kid. <laughs> we, we want our own glory. How about Facebook? Oh, my gosh, don't get me started. Facebook exists so that we can tell the world, worship me. I'm important. You need to know what I ate for dinner tonight because I'm the center of the universe and you need to know. In fact, you better honor me by posting on my wall. And if you don't, I'm going to be mad. You're dead, you know? I mean, isn't that not what Facebook is for? We actually think people care. I made a French press of coffee this morning. Haven't made a French press in like six months. I actually thought about tweeting it. Oh, I made my first French press in six months. But then I thought... That's ridiculous. No one cares. No one cares. I'm not even finished the French press. You know what I mean? It's going to get cold before I finish it. Why do we do this? Who cares? We want our own glory. We're not any different than Xerxes. I like what Driscoll said in his sermon. He says, 
It's easy for us to look at Xerxes and condemn his overindulgence and his desire for glory. But what he had in reality, we have on our hard drives. We may not have a harem, really, but we have one digitally. The only difference between you and Xerxes is income. And so what he had in reality, you have digitally and the times have changed, but the hearts have not. You've got a harem on your computer. You've got this, you're a God on your computer. You want everyone to know you on Facebook. You want to build up a castle for yourself. The truth of the matter is, is that we all think we're the king. Or at least we want to be the king. And we don't want anyone to tell us what to do. So Xerxes thought he was the king of kings. You and I, we want to be the king of kings. As we close, I want to ask us to discuss something. Um, First thing is, you seek your own glory. I know that's true. But the second thing is, is there something missing? I don't know if you've noticed it or not tonight, but we're here at church, and we've talked a lot about Xerxes. We've talked a lot about Facebook. What have we not talked about? Jesus, Jesus thank you. We've talked a lot about stuff that kind of makes my stomach turn, but we've not talked about the glory of the king. In fact, we've read like nine verses in, in this book, and, and we've not... Um, seen anything about God. I mean, if we just read this whole thing, this is very, this is very godless. It's the opposite of God. It's just, it's, it's, it makes me kind of sick. Maybe you're thinking, well, what if we just keep reading? <laughs> Let's just keep reading Esther and see what happens. I'll just, go ahead and t- I'll just go ahead and tell you, nowhere. God is nowhere in the book of Esther. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't do anything as far as we can see. No prophet shows up and says, God doesn't like this. Sulfur and fire is coming down from heaven in 90 days. That doesn't happen. An angel doesn't speak to Mordecai and tell him what to do. An angel doesn't speak to Esther and tell her what to do. Mordecai and Esther don't speak to God and ask him, what should we do? There's no, God doesn't say anything and they don't say anything about God. It's why Luther hated the book. It's why Calvin didn't write a commentary on the book. It's why it's so controversial. There's no God in Esther. It's a godless book. So far, it looks like America, (laughs) right? Partying, money, gold, desire after partying and money and gold and glory and no God. So I wonder, I mean, if you're honest, does it look at all like your life? I mean, how many weeks can you go by without talking to God? And I'll be honest, I can go weeks. Sometimes I do it on purpose because I'm mad at him. Sometimes I do it because I'm busy and I think that he's, I think he's there, you know, hidden sort of in the background of my life, but I need to talk to him. Or how many of you feel like this? I have talked to God, but I don't think he's listening. I have prayed to God. He's not answered my prayers. I'm sick and I've asked for healing and I've not been healed. I've never heard God's voice. I've never seen a vision. I've never seen an angel. How do I even know God exists? Maybe the best thing for me is to have Facebook and to have a Jaguar. Maybe that's what I need because God doesn't seem to be here. He seems to be absent. He seems to be far away. So what I want to discuss at your tables is this. Uh, To what degree would you say this is true? The two things that I said. You've got two choices. This is a choose your own adventure discussion. (laughs) To what degree would you say that the story of Esther mirrors your own life? Either in that your own desire is to glorify yourself or and that it seems as if God is absent or at least very far off. Let's just take about three minutes to discuss that. 
just a word of encouragement to those of you who may be feeling like God is absent, God's not there, you, you've been praying, he's not answering, you've not, see, you've not heard his voice, you don't know. Um, can I just encourage you and say that as we begin to study this book, we're going to see that God really is at work. In fact, he's hidden through the details of this story, which is one of the fascinating parts of this story, that God is hidden in the story. In fact, it's what Esther means in, in, in Greek or in Persian. It means hidden. So we're going to get to that later, unpack that. But God is hidden in the details of, and the circumstances of Esther's life. And I am pretty confident that he's also hidden, in, in, as, as we probably even shared at your tables, he's hidden. He's, he is providing. He is showing you in little glimpses that he's there and he knows what you're dealing with and he loves you nonetheless. That's why the subtitle of this series is God's perfect work through imperfect people. You don't have to be perfect. God doesn't want you to be perfect. You can be much like Esther. We have no idea who Esther is, what she's thinking, why she's doing what she does. She's very imperfect. In fact, Mordecai's very imperfect. Xerxes is very imperfect as we've covered here tonight, but God is going to work through him and God is going to work through Esther and God is going to work through Mordecai. And I'm pretty sure that God is working through you. And I'm pretty sure you're also imperfect. So this is a pretty good, good, good series, I think. I want to close talking about Jesus. Jesus is a better king. We talked about Xerxes. He is the God-man. He wanted to be king of kings, and for all intentional purposes, he was the king of all kings that ruled the earth. No one in history has ruled as much as Xerxes. He was a king of kings. He wanted to be Jesus. He wanted his own glory. He wanted his own throne. He wanted his, wanted his own heaven with a pavement of jewels. Then we talked about us. We're not any different. We think we're kind of, in a sense, our own little God men and women, our own little kings and queens of our own little empires and our Facebook accounts. <laughs> and we want our own glory. Gosh darn it. But now I want to talk about Jesus. Because aren't you glad that above Xerxes and even above you, is someone who truly is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the better king. That's why we're here tonight, to worship him as king. He's King Jesus. Look at this inscription that Xerxes wrote about himself on his grave. I am Xerxes, the great king, the only king, the king of all countries which speak all kinds of languages. Well, good for you. The king of this entire big and far-reaching earth. Does that sound familiar? I'm the only king? Xerxes thinks he's Jesus. But Jesus is Jesus. Jesus is the better king. And because I would spend too much time trying to rewrite what Mark wrote, let me just read what he wrote because it's awesome. Xerxes was the son of Darius, but Jesus is the son of God. Amen. amen. All right, thank you. Xerxes never tasted poverty nor humility. He grew up in the palace, but Jesus tasted both poverty and humility, and he did it to identify with you and I. Xerxes used the power that he had to abuse women in the harem, but Jesus used his power to honor women. We see that all throughout the New Testament. Xerxes spent his entire life being served, but Jesus spent his entire life to serve. Xerxes killed his enemies with an army of millions, but Jesus died for his enemies in order to save billions. Xerxes sat on the throne in Susa, the richest city in the world, but you know where Jesus sits. He sits on a throne in heaven. Amen. Xerxes was the most powerful man on earth. 
It's true. He's the most powerful man on earth. But Jesus made the earth. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> Jesus made the heavens and he rules over all of creation, including the universe, not just the earth. Xerxes said that he would rule wherever the sun set. He said that. He will rule wherever the sun set. Jesus made the sun. Jesus is the sun. And Jesus rules over the entire universe, even places like Mars where the sun does not set. Or further than Mars, I should say. Xerxes died and today no one worships Xerxes as God. At least I don't think so. <laughs> but Jesus conquered death. He didn't die. He conquered death and today billions worship him as God. Amen. Xerxes thought he was a man who became a God. You know where I'm going. Jesus is the only God who became a man. Amen. Amen. Xerxes' kingdom had subjects from many nations, but Jesus' kingdom has joyful worshipers from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Xerxes threw big parties. You and I have thrown some big parties, not like Xerxes, but as we covered last week when we talked about the wedding supper of the Lamb, Jesus is going to throw a party that totally blows his party out of the water. His party will pale in comparison. I'm ready for that party to be with my groom. Xerxes' kingdom came to an end, but we know that Jesus' kingdom has no end. Can I get an amen? amen? We are here to worship Jesus. And so at this point, the band's gonna lead and we're going to worship the Jesus. Who's a better king? The, the king who stepped down from his throne and walked on the earth with us to serve us, to love us, to honor us even, and to give gifts to men. Jesus is the better king. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we have no...